Well, today I wanted to talk about uh, prayer, but I have to set this up carefully. So this is not going to be a normal sermon in the sense that I'm just going to give you a text and preach from it. We're going to do a lot of different things. So what I want you to do is make sure you have a Bible and a pencil and your bulletin, because we do have an outline in the bulletin, but we're going to be talking about the very first part of a, of a two-part series on a practical primer on prayer. So there's a lot of things to talk about, and I want you to be able to write verses down and some other things uh, that we talk about here uh, in the bulletin. So uh, we're doing this because why? Well, we, we have talked a little bit about prayer already, and you might say, well, gosh, this would be the third sermon on prayer, and, and then another sermon's coming up. Why do we have to talk so much about prayer? And the answer is that uh, prayer is a model of what the early church did for one, on one hand, and then I'll say something on the other hand. But if you already take your Bibles, if you don't have one, there's one in the pew, hopefully, a pew Bible, and you can find the book of Acts and go to the very first chapter of the book of Acts. And we're going to be doing this going back and forth through some of the scripture. Uh, and you can write it down on your, uh, on your bulletin, the little section there on, your, uh, uh, on the notes for this, this Sunday. But Acts chapter 1 verse 12 uh, gives us a pattern a thing, a th one of the things that the early church did over and over and over again. So right away, after the, uh, the uh, death of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection, the early church got together, and this is what they did in chapter 1 of Acts, verse 12, when they, that refers to all of the disciples, returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they arrived, they went to the room upstairs where they were staying. And then we get a little list of who these people are. Uh, Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. These are the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles. They, look at verse 14, they were all continually united in prayer along with the women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. They were united together in prayer, not just one time, but continually. This is a pattern for an essential church. This is a pattern for a uh, revitalized church. This is a pattern for a church that goes places and does things and makes a difference in the world. And what they do, first of all, is to pray. So it stands to reason that we need to learn about prayer. We need to know how to pray. Uh, one of the things that scares people the most is praying. You just do this and ask somebody to stand up and pray in public. And they'll say, please excuse me. Or they'll get all knees knocking and shaking because we don't always talk about what prayer is. And we don't always encourage people to learn to pray the disciples came to Jesus, and we have what's called the, the model prayer. Some people call it the Lord's Prayer, but it's really a model prayer. And much of what we're going to talk about is in the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer. You can find it there. But the disciples came to Jesus, and they said, Lord, teach us to pray. So one of the things that we're going to talk about here is that prayer is not a natural normally kind of thing we do. It is something we need to be taught about and we need to learn how to exercise it. The, actually, the really, uh, if you want to say success, because that's a word that's used by a lot of people in a lot of different ways, but the success of Providence Baptist Church being a church and the success of each of us as individuals in being faithful Christians really depends on our fellowship and communion with God. And for that, we need to learn how to pray. We need to learn how to come before a holy God and commune with him and have effective communion with him. Throughout the rest of our lives, until God tarries in sending Jesus the Son, either we lay ourselves down in death or Jesus comes and calls us 
to be with him, one of the things that we have to do is work on prayer. And the reason why we have to work on prayer is because that's what the early church did. Now, one of the things in the transitional process is to talk about church culture. Everybody has a culture. Right now, the big deal is cancel culture. If somebody doesn't like you, they want to cancel you, get rid of you, stop you from anything else. And there's battles of culture going on today. Of course, one uh, individual was very uh, perceptive and said it's not really a battle between cultures, it's a battle between the Lord God and Satan. But nevertheless, we need to think about and develop a culture, which means a way of looking at things, a way of doing things, a way of responding, a culture that is truly biblical, truly blessed by God, truly directed by Him as we seek the will of God. And in order to do that, we have to learn what the early church did and then understand that it becomes a pattern for us. So in the transitional process, we've already talked about the Great Commission. We had a couple sermons on that, remember? The Great Commission. So the Great Commission is our marching orders. So what do we do to accomplish the Great Commission? And that's pretty much found in Acts chapter 2, if you'll turn the page over there. Verse uh, 42, Acts chapter 2, verse 42, basically tells us that the early church did certain things that developed a church culture. And so the bottom line here is that Providence Baptist Church, in all that we do, needs, we need to develop this kind of culture, this kind of way of doing things to be able to uh, really actually do the Great Commission if we're called to go out and tell people about the Lord and, and teach them about Him and baptize them and, and develop the fellowship. This is what the church did. Now, I preached one sermon way back when on this, but we're going to be taking these things as we go along. And you'll notice this as, as, um, as we try to talk about church culture and what the church providence is supposed to do. Verse 42, they, that is the disciples, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. We call that discipleship, learning all about what Jesus said and did. And to the fellowship, which people can understand not to be, you know, potluck suppers that we bring or ice cream fellowships. That's not just what fellowship is. Fellowship means joining together to do the work. So in this case, fellowship means joining together to get to know each other and love each other, pray for each other and encourage each other, but also joining together to do the ministry, what God has called us to do. How are we to go out with our purpose, which is to bring people to Christ, and how are we to do that together? How do we go out together, fellow to fellow, doing it together together? Uh, in ministry. So we could call that ministry. Then to the breaking of bread, which I call worship. That means part of our worship when we come together. It's not just eating. It, I think this refers to the Lord's Supper, breaking of the bread. It's a way of saying that Jesus took the bread and broke it and he took the cup and blessed it. And that's part of our worship. That's part of our remembering God. The worship is a very serious part of the church as well. And also, if you'll notice there at the end of verse 42, what do you have? Prayer. Deep, soul-nourishing, God-moving prayer is needed by the church. If you want your church to be an essential church, you need to have these things in, in, in effect. Now, there's one other that we get from the rest of the material there in Acts, and that's evangelism or outreach where we go and tell people about what God has done. This is exactly what's happening is Peter and the other disciples go and heal people and begin to preach the gospel and people come to know the Lord. But it's all based on these things, continuing in discipleship, continuing in ministry, continuing in worship, continuing in evangelism. But I want to emphasize continually all the time in prayer. Prayer is what churches need to have revival. Prayer is what churches need to become essential to grow. So we need to talk about prayer, the reason for prayer, getting closer to God. How do we pray? And that's what we're going to talk about this Sunday and next Sunday on our practical primer 
on prayer part one and part two. Because there's some ideas that people have given to us to help us understand what we should do. There's a, a gentleman by the name of Gregory Frizzell, and several of his books are about deepening your prayer life and deepening your spiritual life, and I'd recommend his books as well. There's also a little booklet that we're going to sort of follow by, Ed, uh, by uh, Price, I forget his first name. It's called Acts in Prayer, A-C-T-S. You can buy it through Lifeway or get a couple of copies, and it talks about going through that pattern, A-C-T-S, and what that means. And we're going to do a little modification of that here in our practical primer. And then, of course, this is an oldie, but a goodie. It's by Peter Lord. It's called the 2959 Plan. This was actually published back in 1976, so I don't know if you can still find them. But you noted it, it talks here about my God to communion with God. And the design of the 2959 is to say, you can pray for 29 minutes and 59 seconds, you know, for a half an hour. It's how to pray for a half an hour or longer. We think, oh my gosh, I got to pray. Well, let's get it over with. We sit down to eat and we say, rub-a-dub-dub, thank God for the grub. Yay, God, let's go and eat, you know? And we don't think of prayer as being that kind of communion with God. Now, we got, if you guys are married and you courted your wife or your husband, you caught your husband or whatever you want to say it, and, you know, and, and, and you were all Google-eyed when they were around, and you always wanted to be with them, right? Now, if you've been married very long, you, you might say hi in passing a few times, but the idea is that love for our spouse wants us to be in fellowship with them, communion with them, effectively near them. Well, this is the way it is with God. If we love God, we need to be near Him. We need to have that kind of relationship with Him where we enjoy Him and honor and give Him glory because He created us and He's done so much for us. And so we should learn how to pray for quite a long time and not be shy of it. So this is a kind of a plan of how to get you to pray for 30 minutes I've seen some for 60 minutes. I've seen some people talking about praying all day. And you're going to find in the, in the book of Acts that when the church faced really difficult problems, they spent a lot of time in prayer until God was able to move in their hearts. So our whole purpose is to kind of say that this is a way to have a living a relationship with a living God. Frizzell said, remember your prayer life is a personal relationship with a living God. If you don't have a very good prayer life, it stands to reason that maybe you don't have a very good relationship with God. You're not listening to him. He's not involved in your life. So we need to make sure we have a good prayer life. How do we do that? Well, we can follow several steps. I've got four of them listed here, and then next Sunday we're going to do about four more. So number one talks about the necessary tools. Now, if you, would, you have Psalm 119.11 there, you can look this up if you will. We will look a couple of verses up. But you should know this when This says, thy word have, it's literally, your word I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin against thee. So a lot of different versions have a different way. I've treasured or I've hid your words in my heart that I might not sin against you. Psalm 119.11, it, it basically says that the word of God is important to me, and I need to get those tools to give me the basic and the foundation and the preparation for prayer, because you got to get prepared to pray. You just don't do it. you got to get prepared to have a deeper prayer life. And so one of the things we need to do is to realize that we treasure God's words and we, we get those together. So the basic thing that you need to have is a quiet devotional time, number one. That's an important thing. Oh, it doesn't fit in my schedule. Well, I would say that your schedule would probably be a whole lot different if you had a quiet devotional time. A quiet time where you can focus right on God and, and not be distracted. Now, I don't know how to do that. I mean, some people, if they have a long drive to work. They don't close their eyes, but they can do it in, uh, turn the radio off and, you know, drive well, but talk to the Lord. Think about how 
you can at least begin to do some of this in your prayer life where you are. I mean, I know it's probably better not to do it while you're driving, but I'm saying find time. You need quiet time. You need some time that you can be just with the Lord, face to face. So there's no distractions in your life. Um, maybe sometime you could do it after the kids go to bed, early in the morning, but you need some time. If you're going to try to pray for 30 minutes, you need 30 minutes. And you need some time to do the focusing things we're going to talk about to be able to come closer to the Lord. You guys who have done this before, you kind of know what this means, but we're just going to go over it for all of us so we can learn. You need a Bible, uh, perhaps one or more translations. I always talk about people having their own personal Bible and keeping it there. It's okay to write in the margin, I think, and it's okay to, to, to uh, highlight verses, but you're going to need a Bible uh, to, to write things down and to remember things and highlight things that the Lord shows you uh, in your Bible, t- in, in your prayer time. You need some kind of a notebook uh, or some kind of a book, not just a prayer journal alone. There are people who make prayer journals, but this book particularly has um, the, the small three-ring binder and it has the folder labels on the side here, the tabs. This one says daily and then Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, all the way through Saturday. But I would add to that what we're going to do, adoration A, adoration affirmation, and then uh, confession C, and then we need to have um, thanksgiving, and then we're going to need to have supplication, which could be subdivided into uh, intercession and petition. And we'll talk about those things, but they would be what you could hold down. Now, this little plan has like everything you want to pray daily for, you write in here and you pray for that daily. But anything you want to do just on a Monday or another day of the week, uh, you can write things down that you've divided up. Because there are some things that we don't have to pray for every day, but we want to remember to pray. And if you say to a friend, I'll pray for you, uh, the easiest thing we do is we say, I'll pray for you, then we never do because we never remember to do it. So I might say, I'm going to pray for you on Tuesday. So I go to my Tuesday page and I write down your name and the circumstances. And then I have a record every Tuesday to pray for you. And so my words saying, I'll pray for you, don't become hollow or useless Uh, just niceties, but I actually do pray for you. So you need some kind of a book that you can take notes in. When God speaks to you, when God opens your heart up, when someone asks for prayer, some way in which you can do that, and I would divide it up to daily and then maybe Monday through Friday, and then um, ACTS to begin with. There's a good call I've heard before to take your church directory and divide that up during the week and say on Sunday, pray for the A through C people and then the you know D through F on the next day and so forth down the, uh, down the rest of the week and you're praying for your church, fellow church members. It's one of the greatest things that we can do for others is to pray for each other. So also, I think it wouldn't be bad to have... Um, as well, um, a Bible dictionary um, at hand, if you can. A concordance, maybe. Maybe your Bible has a concordance in the back. I don't know. Mine does. Most of them do. But you can have a concordance there. And you can also take a hymn book. You know, get a hymn book. I don't mean take one from the church, per se, but have a hymn book. And um, Price, Robert Price says it's good to um, have that for your time of adoration and praise because uh, we'll collect or encourage you to collect verses that deal with these areas, but it's good to sing one of those songs, you know, like holy, holy, holy in our heart. Are we there? I, mean, I don't know if people here are singing, but it doesn't matter, but the words of these Uh, Hymn writers have been offered praise to God and they can help us praise him 
as well. So it wouldn't be bad to have a hymn book. Remember, Psalm 119.18 says, Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your, from your law. Open my eyes, Lord, that I may be able to see wonder, wonderful things, wonders from your Torah, your teaching, your law. That's in Psalm 119.18. So we need to ask God to help us get the right tools which begins with that first thing is the time spent or that quiet time to be able to spend with the Lord. Now, the next thing we need to do is number two. Now, there are some people who say we should do number two first or number three first. We're going to talk about number two and number three, and you can flip them back and forth. It doesn't matter. But I think affirmation, let's go back to two, though. It's all right. I think affirmation is, uh, and adoration is number three, but affirmation I would put first. Because in the middle of our busy day, when we get to doing so many different things and we're focusing on tasks and people and experiences, what we tend to do is to take our eyes off of the Lord and we forget that He's with us. And the very first thing we need to do in prayer is realize that if we know Jesus Christ, and this is one of the soap opera thing, or I mean the soapbox preaching that I do, not soap opera, whatever. <laughs> soapbox preaching that I do, uh, it's a, something that's a hobby horse to ride for me, is that people act like we have to get God's attention. That we have to wake him up. You know, that's what they were doing with uh, Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Elijah was teasing them because it was like Baal wasn't responding. And he said, do you have to wake him up, you know, get his attention? Well, we don't have to do that because the Bible tells us that when we receive Christ Jesus as Lord, he's there with us always. That's in the Great Commission. I'm with you always. He's always with us. What happens, though, is that we forget that. We take our eyes off of him. And so the very first thing that we do under affirmation is to turn our attention to him and say, Lord, I'm sorry by taking my eyes off of you, but you're here and I know it. And so it's, it's a kind of a prayer that begins to thank God for his presence, which is really very powerful because when all of a sudden you realize God is there, the Holy Spirit is there, you're not alone. And this is a promise of God. The whole point of the covenant and the new covenant in the Old Testament was as God's presence would be with Israel. The new covenant, God's presence is with us. And Jesus Christ, he's with us all the time. So we need to have what's called the necessary affirmation. So you can write down that, well, it's written there anyway, Isaiah 40, 31, if you want to turn there with me. Um, it says, they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. Now, the CSB says they that trust in the Lord. But I think the word wait is a better, hope or wait is a better thing. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like as eagles. They shall run and not be weary and, and they shall walk and not faint. That's the gist of it. And the point is that affirming that God's presence is waiting on him. One of the things that we do mistakenly in prayer is to go right to our request. And we want God to do stuff, but we don't wait on him. We, we don't trust that he's there. God's existence is in our heart if we know Jesus Christ. So we need to wait for God. He has told us, in Psalm 46, 10, you may want to write that down, be still and know that I'm God. You need to kind of wait on him, not that he's doing something else and he can't give you his attention, but it's your focusing and centering on his presence that is so important in prayer because you want to recognize through the power of the Holy Spirit that God's there and I'm here and the Holy Spirit's here and now we can begin in the prayer time. I don't want to be distracted by other things. In fact, what you want to do is collect verses um, that speak about God's presence and God's action in, in the world, but particularly God's presence, and write them down in this A section in your notebook. Write them down. Um, 
Peter Lord did that on a couple of the sheets he has. And he wrote these verses of scripture down here that talk about the presence of God. So you can go to that page and just read it and begin to focus on it, almost pray about it, thanking him for his presence. That he isn't the kind of God that does some little thing for us and then takes a six months vacation. He's always with us. And it's very important to emphasize that when you come to prayer, that you affirm that we have that kind of a God. He's not a God we have to beg and plead. I don't like churches, and I'm sorry, who get up in the morning in, in the worship and have an invocation, invoking God to come and show up. As if God's busy at another bigger, larger church and he doesn't have the time for us. He's here. And, and then I really don't like it when we say, Lord, be with us. And you say, be with so-and-so, be with us, be with them, be, be here, go do that. And he's always with us. So it's better to recognize his presence and then say to God, because you're here, help us turn our hearts to you. Help us open our hearts to you. That's more important than asking God to show up. He's already here. What we need to ask is ask God to give us the strength to open our hearts to him, to listen to the Holy Spirit, to be receptive to his teaching, his direction, and his call. See, there's a little bit of a difference there, and yet we fall into that trap and say, oh, Lord, be with so-and-so, be with us. I think he's there. We should pray that so-and-so will sense his presence, will yield to his presence, will allow the Holy Spirit to fill them as they yield to the Holy Spirit and yield to God. So the very first thing, which is seriously important, is affirmation. You need to uh, wait for God, collect verses, and just begin that time of prayer with recognizing God's presence in your life. You know, he's there. If you know Jesus Christ, you've asked him in your heart. It doesn't matter where you are, out working, at shopping, at home, whatever you're doing, he's there. And I want to tell you something. This very first section can become a very sweet time of prayer. You just, just say, yay, God, thanks for showing up. You recognize his presence, and you can take time doing that, remembering what the scripture says and thanking him that he's that kind of a God, 24 hours, right? What do they say? My daughter used to say seven, uh, seven days a week, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days of the year. That's the kind of God we serve. The psalmist said, our Lord never sleeps or slumbers. He's awake always for us. And he knows what's going through our hearts and through our lives, and we just affirm his presence. It could be a very, very sweet time just simply affirming God because sometimes his presence is with us because we get so busy and we get so focused on other things that we forget to look to him. Number three is adoration. Now, some people suggest doing this one first, but I think it becomes the natural outgrowth of, of affirmation. Um, adoration is the contemplation, according to Price, it's the contemplation of the glorious nature of God, adoring, loving God for who he is. So you've affirmed his presence, now you want to thank him for who he is. Not thank him for what he's done, because see, we mistake prayer only for what God gives us. And we run quickly to ask God to give us this or to give us that. But what we need to do is thank him for who he is. Not for what he's done. That comes later, but for who he is. And that means just thinking about his character and his nature. I have uh, Hebrews 13. Therefore, through him, that is Jesus, um, therefore, through him, let us continually offer up to God a sacrifice of praise that is the fruit of lips that confess his name, confess Jesus' name. And when we do this, we affirm and adore God for what he's done through Jesus Christ. But we think about his nature, the kind of God who cared enough about us to give us his son on the cross. We need to do thanksgiving, which is what thanking God for what he's done. But here... 
the purpose of man is to honor God and to glorify him forever. That's part of our task uh, as we do that. Take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 34. This is one of those verses or set of verses. Psalm 34, um, 1 through 3. This is what I would write down in my book under adoration. This is David, um, and he's writing this. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will boast in the Lord. The humble will hear and be glad. Proclaim the Lord's greatness with me. Let us exalt his name together. I mean, that's the point. We, we need to exalt him, to lift him up, glorify him. That's what the word glorify means. We need to bless him. We always ask God to bless us, but we need to bless him. How do we bless God? We bless God by telling him how great he is, how wonderful he is, how powerful he is. He created the world. He's the sovereign God. There is no other God. There is no one more powerful than God. And yet he's the creator of the universe and he created us. And you know what? He's faithful. He's always faithful. People aren't faithful, but he's faithful. We forget we're human. We decide we don't want to do something, but when God speaks it, he says it, and he means it, and he does it. He's that kind of a God. In fact, one of the Psalms says that we need to give praise to God for his hesed, his loving kindness, is forever. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his mercy, you know that word mercy there? That's the word hesed, loving kindness, steadfast love, faithfulness, is for just today, just next week? No, forever. His love is forever. So in adoration, we just adore him. We thank him. We give him praise. Now, you can spend time in affirmation, you know, five, ten minutes, no problem. You spend a lot of time in adoring God and just going through a, a litany, a list of his characteristics. And you know where you can find those? You can find them in the Bible. And you write them down in your book. So the next time you go, you can read those through and then add more and then add more and add more and you get the chance to adore God. And, and you'll find out something about that. I think you'll find out that your, your spiritual life will be different. Because see, what Satan wants to do for us is to get us to focus on ourselves. And when we focus on ourselves, oh, woe is me, we have such a terrible pity party and there comes the depression, and there comes the defeatism, and there comes all the ways that Satan wants to tell us that we can't be what God wants us to be. And you know what? That's because we're focusing upon ourselves. And prayer is first focusing on God and adoring Him and seeking His will and just lifting up to the whole world how great and wonderful He is. I want to tell you something. There's a big deal about knowing the Christian worldview and being to do apologetics. Apologetics is part of the great rage now in the Christian world. You've got to study this apology and that worldview and all these kinds of stuff. So ostensibly, you can give an answer for the hope that lies within you. That's all well and good. But I want to say this. No one can ever argue what God has done for you what you feel about him and what you know of him. And by adoring him, you're learning him. You're getting closer to him. You're coming to understand the greatness of God and the wonder of God. And no one can debate you on that fact. They might say, oh, well, God doesn't exist. You say, fine, maybe yours doesn't, but mine does. And this is what he's done for me. This is how great he is. This is how wonderful he is and you're adoring him, and you're glorifying him, and you're exalting him, the rest of the world will stand up and take note because this is one means of evangelism that we never think about is the testimony of his faithful servants to his greatness and his glory. We need to think about that. But adoration can also be a very sweet time in the Lord, continually giving him praise and thanking him, and loving him, but loving him and adoring him 
for being the most wonderful and only God of the universe. And the only God of the universe is a loving, caring God whose mercy is forever and loving to us. I think that's something we need to do and we need to take care of that. Number four is the more difficult of all. And this is where we now come not only to recognize his presence with us and his standing as God in adoring him, but we also need to come to recognize our position and who we are. The humbleness that we need to come before God. Psalm 66, 18 says, Iniquity, if I see it in my heart or regard it or it appears in my heart, the Lord will not listen. We talked about this before being the thing that we have to do. And I'm not going to go over all of the reasons that we did in the other sermon a couple of Sundays or Sunday or so ago. If we confess our sin, he's, uh, we, we need to come to him and, and learn to allow God through the power of the Holy Spirit to help us deal with our sin. The point of this is that we do not have the power to change our hearts. In, in Psalm 51, David said to God after he had sinned in a terrible way, he said, create in me a clean heart. The process of coming and confessing our sin to God is a process that God helps us do. And he does that after we have learned who he is and affirmed his presence and realized that he is a holy God, a righteous God, and an unholy, unrighteous, sinful human can never stand in his presence. Because there's too far of a disconnect between that. You have to get that picture. Here we have a holy God and we have sinful humans, sinful creation who have turned our backs on him and looked on our own prides and our own pride and our own desires and we have created and continually done sin before a holy God. Price said that getting clean before God is literally the path to holiness. We need to come before him and immediately the Holy Spirit is going to begin to teach us the difference between the two. The book of Ezekiel is interesting because Ezekiel always, God always calls Ezekiel the son of man, which means human. And in the whole book, Ezekiel's dealing with God and God continually calls him human. And Ezekiel begins to understand the vast gulf between our humanness and God's greatness. So we are told we are, we are forced by our prayer to come and deal with our current personal and specific sins. Now, I do want to say something briefly about this. And this is, God will, God's holiness will immediately lead us to examine the fact that we don't measure up. And because we don't measure up, the Holy Spirit begins to convict us of our sins. Now, there are two kinds of sins. The one I'm dealing with here in ongoing prayer is the sin of current specific things that we're doing now. But there are times in our past where we may have committed certain problems or certain things, and we need to get that right with God. And God may be having to deal with us over a longer amount of time, even in current sins, as he calls us to account and as he teaches us through the power of the Holy Spirit that we need to get this right. And so we have to work on this. And because we have to work on this, this makes us humble. And it ought to make us realize that we have to give ourselves and yield ourselves to the Lord. Paul talks about being fit vessels a vessel, a bowl, a, a something that holds something fit for the use and purpose of God. I always talk about those terrible, wonderful pity parties that we have where we've thrown in sin and it's made the, uh, our vessel a garbage can, you know. And like the Marines who make you go clean out the garbage can with a toothbrush, 
God's work through the power of the Holy Spirit begins to clean us out. If we're willing to be yielded to the Lord. If our knowledge of him and becoming a believer means, Lord, I want to be whatever you want me to be, then God is going to begin to attack through the power of the Holy Spirit that so-called garbage can. We like take the lid off and play around it and have a pity party, but God, he doesn't want it to be a garbage can. He wants to, it to be a fit vessel for his service. So you understand that importance of coming and confessing sins because doing that and be receiving the forgiveness of those sins gives God the opportunity to begin to free us from the bondage of that sin. See, Satan wants to use that sin to point the finger at us. Aha, you did this. You can't serve God because you did this. Shut up, sit down, and quit squawking because you're a sinner and God can't use you. But God's saying, let me have you. And I will turn that ugly garbage can that you're carrying around into the most beautiful, wonderful thing that I can use for my glory. See, God enjoys taking a broken thing and making it whole again. He can do that. He enjoys taking someone who doesn't think they're good for anything and teaching them their value and their usefulness and their purpose and God's love for them because he created them in his image. You know, our, our ego is not that we're so wonderful and so good. The Christian's ego is that we have a God who forgives and restores. And what we have to be willing to do in the confession of sin sometimes is to take our time and let the Holy Spirit teach us. But we need to do, come to him and say, Lord, show me my sin. It's far better for the Lord to show us our sin than for some other Christian to show us our sin. It's far better for us in the power of the Holy Spirit to be taught and we learn to make ourselves yielded to the Lord so that he can then do that restorative act in our hearts. It'll be a fight. Because that old human nature, Paul said, we've got to put off those old human natures, be transformed by the renewing of our mind, and put on the new nature. It's like take off those old dirty clothes, let God wash us out, and then we begin to wear the new clothes, the good clothes, the clothes that are useful and the clothes that show the whole world that we become his, that we belong to him. So I want to tell you that we need to get clean before the Lord. We need to ask God to show us our sins. Now, uh, Frizzell and, and Price and others talk about the kinds of sins that we need to think about. So some of the uh, sins of thoughts and attitudes. Um, Paul said that we should allow every thought to be captive to the Lord Jesus Christ in our obedience of Christ. 2 Corinthians 10.5 you may want to write that down. But there are sins of thought, sins of attitudes. There's sins of speech, like what you write on Facebook or Twitter or what you say to other people. Um, there are sins of relationships. You've offended someone else. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, or... Um, you've had improper relationship, you've held grudges, or even you have a lack of relationship with God or with the fellowship in the church. You ignore God's call to pray. There are sins of commission and transgression. That's breaking God's laws. And by the way, God does not rank sin. You can't do a little sin. You sin, period. Whether it's a big sin or a little sin, it's sin. And there are also sins of omission. James 4, 17, you may want to write that down to say, him, to him who knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. And all those are kinds of sins that we have. But the good news is that God is willing to forgive us of all of our sins. And so that's 1 John 1, 9. You want to write that down. You know... <clears throat> I've seen people with tattoos all over the place. And some of the most 
Interesting tattoos, what I want to say. Well, why not put John 1.9 on your, on your arm? Now, I'm not saying get a tattoo. But why not put it before our eyes? You know, we put all kinds of pictures up on the wall. We can do all kinds of things. But what's wrong with not having this in front of us? The psalmist said, I will put no worthless thing before our eyes. You should write that down and put it on top of your TV. You know. But the thing is, God forgives us. And we need to write John, 1 John 1, 9. It's a favorite verse. You should know it. You know. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, this is important. If we confess, we can't, he can't, he, he, you know, he's not a God who just overpowers us and zaps us and makes us perfect. He wants us to respond to him in love and thanksgiving and come to him and confess what we've done wrong to heal that relationship. And if we confess our sins, he is a faithful God and he's a righteous God. He's reliable and he's righteous. He, he's not half righteous or a little bit righteous. He's not like on the TV shows that we can give your opinion or a bunch of opinions. His opinion is righteous. His way is always right and always good. And he's reliable to lead us in it. He doesn't, you know, okay, I, I used Google Maps the other day or something like that. And I tell you, I think they were trying to take me on a wild goose chase. And we might do that to somebody. Oh, this is how you go to this place. Well, you can get there eventually, but it's not the quickest way. You know, you do things like that sometimes to people that irk you a little bit or frustrate you. But God's never like that. He's not human. He's always righteous. True righteousness comes from him. And he's faithful to lead us in the right way. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins. Man. He forgives us our sins. He forgives the fact that we've opened up that fit vessel and dumped it full of, of crud and rotting things. And he forgives us that we did that. But you know what? He even takes it a step further. He not only forgives us when we fall, he gets that toothbrush out and he begins to clean it out. It may hurt a little bit. It may take some time. But he begins to clean it out because John said to us, he's not only faithful and just to forgive us, but he's faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He wants us to be a fit vessel. He wants us to make you know, to make of us a fit vessel for his service. And he's so gracious to forgive us and not remember the sin anymore. In Jeremiah, in God's prophesying or God's prophecy to Jeremiah about the new covenant, in the middle of Jeremiah 31 or near the end where he's talking about what the new covenant is all about, God says this, I will forgive, then I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember never again, no more. See, we have a holy God who is righteous, who is amazing, who is in our presence and he's the one who forgives us of our sins and then he makes it possible for us to be forgiven and then cleansed. Now that process of cleansing means we have to make restitution. We have to change. We have to give the Lord the opportunity to make of us someone who is a faithful follower. And it may hurt a little bit. It's part of the growing pain. But when we come to God in prayer, let me say this, and we'll end right here because we're going to go on next Sunday. I want you to come back so you can get the other part of it. I want to say this, when we affirm God's presence and we adore him and he opens up on us through the power of the Holy Spirit, that process of confession and forgiveness and restoration, you will never, ever, never, ever be different again.
you will come to know God in a way that you've never known Him before. You will begin to understand how much He loved us by sending Jesus on the cross because He is willing to make Jesus' death on the cross not just a ticket into heaven, which a lot of people think that's all it is. But He will begin to teach us that Jesus' death on the cross is the opening and the beginning of a brand new life with Him. And God will do it when we praise Him, when we affirm His presence, when we adore Him, and when we give Him the ability and the right and the opportunity to begin that restorative process by coming to Him and confessing our sins and allowing Him to begin to cleanse us. He forgives us and then cleanse us from that sin. So that old garbage can becomes a beautiful crystal, a beautiful vessel. Beautiful because God made us that way when He created us. And that's what He wants us to be. But you know what? It's going to take time and it's going to take some pain. It may hurt a little bit. It's going to expand us in our spiritual growth. And that's why we need prayer. And maybe that's why we tend to get up and pray and skip immediately to Aunt Sally's bad toe or to our needs. And we never really give God the opportunity to minister to us. Like, I want a Mercedes Benz. Everybody else has got a Porsche, and I have to make amends, as Janis Joplin once sang. We always want the good things as if God's a great big daddy in the sky giving us everything. We push the right buttons and out comes the blessings. See, God wants to bless us in who we are. And he does that when the Holy Spirit begins to teach us. You know what? You didn't do the right thing. You sinned against God. You sinned against others. There's all these kinds of things that the Bible talks about about how that makes us live an inauthentic life. But if we come to know the Lord and we give him our hearts and we begin to confess our sins and we let him have his way and he forgives us, he begins to restore us. And folks, that's an authentic, essential life for Christ. And that's what a church will be if the church is willing to do this. We're going to have a hymn of invitation, a worship song from the inside out. We're going to ask the musicians to come forward. I'd like for you to consider where you are, that you will just, in your own heart, yield to the Lord Jesus and learn how we can pray together to make a difference in our individual lives and in our church life. Are you willing to say, yes, Lord, here I am. I will serve you. I will open my heart to you so that you can make me what you want me to be. Let's stand and sing this morning.